You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Father God, uh, we're so grateful that because of Christ, our life is hidden with him on high. That because of him, we can boldly approach your throne. That we can stand before you, uh, not because of our works, but because of what Christ has done for us. That we wear his righteousness. That we wear his goodness because of who he is, not because of what we've done. And Father God, help us to understand the goodness and the grace of Jesus found at the cross. That our lives are completely and radically changed. Completely and radically different because of his work. Because of him conquering death. Because of him atoning for our sins. And we're grateful for that, Lord. I pray, Lord, that this morning, that this sermon would be pleasing to you. That we would be hearers, not just hearers, but doers. We would see the importance of the way that we worship you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, guys. So if you have your Bibles or your notebooks, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 this morning. Um, and, and so the question that I want you to think about this morning is, why are you here? Why are you here at church this morning? Why did you take time out of your busy week to come to church? Is it because that you've done this every Sunday since you were a child? Is it because you feel like it has to be done to check it off your quote-unquote good person checklist? Were you dragged here by a friend or a family member? Were you made to come because your parents forced you to come and you'd rather be at home watching YouTube or playing video games? Did you come here expecting that by being here, God would somehow make your life better? That if you attended church, God would be impressed that you were here and he would give you what you desire? Or did you show up to truly worship God? Did you come to show gratitude to the Almighty Savior that provided salvation through Jesus? What is your motivation for being at church today? I don't know if you realize this or not, but God is concerned with how we worship Him. He is concerned and cares about what we say and how we approach Him in worship. And this is a reality that's demonstrated in the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there are right ways and there are wrong ways to worship God. And this morning, Solomon, he's going to, going to help us to see that in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. He's going to lay out the fact that we need to come before God with both awe and reverence. Not only that, but that God is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your praise. He is worthy of us offering it to him with a humble and a grateful heart. Up to this point in Ecclesiastes, Solomon has talked a lot about the things that he has observed. But this morning's scripture is the first time that he presents us with something to do, an action to be taken. He is now as the royal preacher commanding that we take worshiping the Lord seriously. Worshiping God isn't a game to be played. It's not a game to be won. Rather, worshiping God is grace that has been given to us. The fact that we can come to him is a grace that we should take it seriously and that we should be intentional in our worship. 
Now, if you're following along in Ecclesiastes, this is kind of a pivot point. Ecclesiastes 5 is. And it could kind of seem out of place. Well, Solomon is talking, why is he suddenly talking about worship? Why is he concerned with coming before the Lord? He's talked about our pursuit of, of uh, possessions and pleasure and wealth. He's talked about the seasons of life that God is in control. He's talked about the need of our friendships and relationships, companionship. But now he turns to the worship of God. What's going on here? Well, if we dig a little deeper, we realize that Solomon has been talking about worship this whole time. The pursuit of pleasures, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of possessions is a form of worship. It's the worship of idols, the worship of false gods. It's a worship because you're pursuing something that takes top place in your life. It is what you worship. We are worship factories. As, as John Calvin says, our heart are idol factories. If we don't worship the true God, we're going to worship something else. Think about it this way. Our journey through Ecclesiastes has been like thumbing through a photo album for those of us who are a little younger. Um, it's like scrolling through Instagram. God has given us uh, little pictures and snippets and snapshots of life. He's talked about activities and grief, frustration, pleasure, pain, success. He's looked at the vanity of life without God and chasing after the emptiness that the world has to offer. And here he's providing us with a picture of a religious worshiper. He's presenting us with the true value when we worship rightly. If there is true value when we worship rightly. Because the reality is we're all worshipers. We all worship something. And we either worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, or we worship something that is vain and empty. Something that is meaningless. Something as Solomon say, the pursuit of the wind. Now, real quick, before we look at the text, I want to give you some insight into the structure of this section. So you can kind of check out for a minute if you want to. But this, these verses are broken into two paragraphs and then a conclusion. The first paragraph is verse 1 through 3, and the second paragraph is 4 through 6, and then the conclusion is found in verse 7. And these paragraphs follow a similar pa- pattern. The, the, first is, uh, the first sentence is like a... a positive statement and the second is a negative statement and the third is uh, a proverb with the conclusion wrapping up in verse 7 and all of this instruction that we're going to look at and we're going to read about this morning is leading towards the understanding of the conclusion in verse 7 and the conclusion is the theme of Ecclesiastes therefore fear God So as we look at the study of these verses, know that Solomon is pointing us toward the fear of the Lord. That's where we are going. That's where he is taking us. If we fear the Lord, then our worship of him will not be frivolous. It will not be empty. It will not be oriented towards self. Rather, it will be oriented rightly toward God and his goodness, his love, his grace, his compassion, and his authority. But before we dive into verse verses one through seven. Let me pray for us real quick. Father God, I pray this morning that you would illuminate your scriptures, that you would open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our souls to what it is you would have us to do. Lord, that you would teach us to worship you rightly, that we would see the importance of coming before you boldly. Yes, but rightly also that we would come before you in understanding rightly who you are. Not frivolous worship, but true and right worship. 
Prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, prepare our souls for your instruction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Now I want to let you in on a little secret real quick. This is going to be the longest part of my sermon. And then we're going to speed through the last six verses, okay? I just want to prepare you for that. So when you're looking up 25 minutes in and you're like, he hasn't even got it through verse 1, just, just I promise you, I'll take it. Anyway, so verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. What is the first thing that Solomon wants us to see as we rightly worship the Lord? That we need to be prepared and that we need to listen. Okay. Like I said earlier, God cares about how we worship and Solomon knows this. He urges us to be prepared when it comes to worshiping God. Back in Solomon's time, if we remember the, the temple was the place of worship, the, the highest place of worship. In fact, they believe that was where God dwelled, that God dwelled in the temple or in the tabernacle when they were in the wilderness before the temple existed. The temple was a place where heaven met earth, where God dwelled with his people. So it was imperative that people take worship seriously. In fact, there are warnings about coming to the house of God in the Old Testament wrongly. But before the temple, the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness, okay? And, and God instructed Moses and the Israelites on how to build a mobile temple, what we call the tabernacle. And God was very specific with the ways that the tabernacle was to be built and how people were to worship God in the midst of the tabernacle. The tabernacle could only be entered into by the priest and they would have to be cleansed and follow God's instruction or they would heap wrath upon themselves. This happened very, very, very early in Israel's history. Right after the construction of the tabernacle, Aaron, Moses' brother, felt the weight of God's holiness and the importance of following God's instruction when it came to worshiping him. Unfortunately, Aaron had a couple sons who did not listen, who did not take heed to God's instruction. Those two sons were Nadab and Abihu, or Abihu, who were going to take care, they were, going to, they were tasked with taking care with the, of the tabernacle with Aaron. They were to be mediators between God and Israel. But Nadab and Abihu, or Abihu, didn't take God's instructions to heart. I'm going to read what happened, okay? This happens in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. And this is what it says. Now Aaron's, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan, put it in the fire, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then fire came from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has spoken. I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me, and I will reveal my glory before all the people. And Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, come here and carry your relatives away from in front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. So they came forward and carried them in their tunics outside the camp. As Moses has said, did you catch that? Nadab and Abihu died because they disobeyed God. They were penalized for dishonoring God's tabernacle. 
Now, this wasn't a, a super regular occurrence in the Old Testament, but it did happen, and it happened to prove a point. Approaching God and worshiping God is done on his terms and not our own terms. We should, not worship, we should worship him according to the ways that he has prescribed and instructed us to worship. Meaning that as we approach God for worship, we need to watch our steps. Or we need to, as Solomon says, guard our steps. We need to prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls to enter into and exalt the living Lord. This means that we need to proceed with reverence and worship. Coming to worship shouldn't be an afterthought. Rather, it should be intentional. We should contemplate and think about the worship that we want to offer. Is it good? Is it right? Is it holy? Or is it simply something that we do because we feel like we have to? So how do we better prepare for worship on Sunday morning? I want to let you in on a secret. You don't wait until Sunday morning to prepare for worship. Sunday morning corporate worship begins on Saturday evening. Many times we, especially we of young children, overestimate our ability. We, have, we believe that we can get up on Sunday morning, get our kids ready, head out the door and arrive to worship with just a few minutes to spare. But the reality is, is this hardly, if ever, the actual case. Instead, we get frustrated because we can't find our notebook or we can't find our Bible. Little Johnny doesn't know where his shirt is. Susie can't find her dress shoes. We overslept because we were up super late the night before. Now everyone is dragging and frustration is mounting. And I know this is true because it's been true in my life. And I'm, I know it's been true because it's been true in your life as well. We need to begin to prepare Saturday for worship on Sunday. Prepare our minds and our hearts and, and our way. That's what it means to guard our heart, to guard our steps. In fact, taking practical steps to make sure that you get here to worship together on time and right so that you don't get frustrated and angry. So a practical step would be set out clothes Saturday night. Pick out what you're going to wear. Make a plan for breakfast. Go to bed early on Saturday night and get a good night's sleep. Or these are practical steps that we can take in order to prepare our heart for worship so that when we come to worship together, we don't have to throw on the face of, oh, everything's fine. The face of love, the face of compassion, after you just yelled at your kids the whole way here, or after you just got frustrated with your husband because he didn't put gas in the car, or whatever it is. So that when you come to worship together, you don't have to fake it. You don't have to be seething because you're late. Look out for those little stumbling blocks. Guard your steps that cause your heart not to be prepared. And to the best of your ability, remove them Saturday evening instead of stumbling over, there, uh, over them on Sunday morning. You see, for the people that Solomon was preaching to, the temple was viewed as the actual home of God. They knew that it wasn't confined to the temple. They knew that God wasn't actually living in the temple or confined to that temple. But they approached the temple knowing that they were coming to a special place on earth. They would imagine the, the story of Moses standing in front of the burning bush in Exodus. The place where he was standing was holy ground, not to be defiled by the shoes of his feet. Moses was standing somewhere sacred. The Israelites believed the temple was as sacred and that it was important for them to approach worship with a pure and prepared manner. Now things are different this side of the cross. We no longer 
have to go to a temple or even have a human mediator between us and God. Jesus is our mediator. He is our go-between. He is the perfect son of God whose blood was shed so that we can enter into the presence of God boldly and confidently, but not arrogantly. There is no longer a single temple of God, but every believer is the temple of God. We are all walking temples. So when we think about it, there's nothing super special about this wall or this, these walls or this pulpit or this room. There's nothing special until we gather together to worship together. Monday through Saturday, this is simply a room. On Sunday, though, when the saints gather and worship God together, this room becomes sacred. Not because of the room, but because of what is taking place in the room. Worship of the holy, perfect, and infinite King. So we guard our steps when we go into the house of the Lord. Now there is a, an assumption in this phrase that the assumption is that we're going to worship the king of the universe. But not only that, we are, when we are going to church, when we are going to church, when we are going to worship the Lord, when, not if, when, there is an assumption in there that we go to worship the Lord. That as God's people, we want to come worship the Lord. That we are creating some sort of routine. Now some of you, depending on the tradition you come from, may balk at the idea of a routine. Depending on where you went to church, you, you thought that just going to church was the routine. When it comes to church, you hate the thought of routine. Excuse me. But here's a funny thought about that. Like if you heard me say that church should be a routine in your life and you went, uh, I don't know about that. Think about this. Your whole life is built on a series of routines. Your life is a routine. You get up at the same time during the week. You brush your teeth at least once a day, hopefully. You eat breakfast and lunch and dinner around the same time every day. Your work days are roughly the same each day. Routines work for us when we allow them to. But for whatever reason, there are many who don't want church to be a part of a routine or they don't want to slap the label of routine on church. But what do routines do? They build and develop and shape our habits. And we should be in the habit, in the routine of gathering together to worship. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 said this, And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. There is an assumption that we will gather together. We no longer have to go to the temple or have a human mediator between us, but that we still gather together in worship. That we still gather together with other believers. This should be a commonplace thing in our life. It should be a routine in our life. Being at church should be more normal than not being at church. Now, I don't want anybody to feel attacked here. That's not the aim, and it's not aimed at anybody specifically. But if you believe that God is who he says he is, and God did what he said he did, then I would assume that he would be the most important person in your life. And if he is the most important person in your life, why would you purposefully neglect gathering together with other people who love this same God and worship this same God? What better way can you think of to start your week than by worshiping the one who gave you life? 
the one who gave himself for you, and worshiping with other people who love the same God. We should desire to chase the consistency of worshiping our Savior. If you need to put worship on your schedule to help build that routine, then do it. If on Saturday afternoon you need to have an, an, an alarm every week to prepare your weekend for worship, then do that. If you need to pull kids out of other activities so that you can attend worship, then do that. Worship of God with other believers should be a priority for those who love God. If you believe and trust in Jesus, you should want to go to worship. In fact, it's a given that you will come and be with other believers. And when we come to worship God, we are to listen and obey. When we come to worship, we are to listen and obey. That's what the second half of verse 1 says. To approach in obedience, or some of your translations may say, to go near and listen, to draw near and listen, or maybe to even listen and obey. As we worship, we need to listen to what God is saying, both through the songs and through the preaching of his word. Look, it's not Josh up here preaching at you. Prayerfully, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through me and touching your heart and your soul and your mind. You see, God listens to us, and we really love the idea of God listening to us. But the question is, are you listening to him? Are you attentive and mindful for what God is telling you to do? And I will tell you this, if you can't listen to God, you haven't prepared your heart and your mind. You aren't prepared for worship. If you're still thinking about what happened at work last week, if you're still angry because you were late to church, if you're still harboring animosity towards someone in your family or a friend or someone you, you worship with, you should lay down those distractions. You sh you're not prepared for worship. So we should lay down everything that hinders us. Again, prepare for the worship of the Lord. The world is always trying to pull us in different directions. But we need to make sure that when we gather with the body of Christ, that our focus is here and now. Listening to God. Worshiping with one another. Remember, Solomon does not shy away from the realities of this fallen world. But sometimes he knows that it's hard to listen but he doesn't sugarcoat the message, the messy world that we live in as well, right? So here what he does in this opening verse, he tells us that there will be people who come to the house of the Lord and they're not doing it out of true and right, right worship, but rather out of religious obligation. And those who come out of religious obligation, those who are not coming to actually worship the Lord, he calls them fools. And these fools believe that by bringing their sacrifice, they are right with God, that they are made clean. Let's look at it. Verse, five, uh, verse 1, chapter 5. At the end of it, he says this. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice of, as fools. For they ignorantly do wrong. The sacrifice of fools. They're doing what they think is right, but they're not actually right with God. And these fools believe that bringing their sacrifice, that they are made clean, that God's okay with their sinful and wicked hearts because they have been sacrificing something for him. They're simply trying to get a pass from God. The fools haven't been transformed by the relationship with God. Rather, they are trying to manipulate God into loving them because of the sacrifice that they bring. But I'll tell you this, God isn't about that life. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, 
God says this, or Samuel says this about the Lord. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the word of the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Listening is better than empty gifts. The fool arises in churches today as well. They believe that because they give money or because they give time to the church that God owes them something. Rather than serving the Lord, they want the Lord to serve them. Look at all these amazing things I have given you, God. Bless me. Because I have given these things, I should have influence and power and fame above all else. Make my name great, Lord. This is foolish. I give to the church so that the pastor will listen to what I want him to say. He'll preach about what I want him to preach. In fact, I personally have known pastors who were pushed out of their positions because someone in the congregation didn't like what they were saying. They were pushed out because someone was more concerned with, quote, my church than they were with the kingdom of God. Those people who come to church to worship themselves are foolish. They're doing wrong. And they're doing so, Solomon says, ignorantly. They don't even know what they are doing, that what they are doing violates God's instructions. How can he say that? How can they not know what they're doing is wrong? Because they don't know the heart of God. They don't understand the heart of God. They are bringing to bear their own heartless sacrifice to try and manipulate God. They want what God can do. They don't want the heart of God. So in order to contrast them, we have to prepare and be ready for worship. We don't want to ignorantly offend God with our worship. We want to intellectually engage in the worship of God. So we need to know God. We need to know what he loves. We need to know what he hates. That that is loving him with all our minds. When we know God, that's loving him with our own minds, whole minds. Prepared and wise attendance to church should teach us humility and to listen to God. If we listen and we are humble, we will steer clear of being fools. And we will be the wise ones who fear the Lord. Like I said earlier, that's the longest part of my sermon. So the next parts we should get through pretty quickly. Maybe. We'll see. Chapter, uh, verse 2 and 3. Do not be hasty to speak. And do not be impulsive to make speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. What is this that Solomon is talking about? He's telling us to pray and to pray humbly. Now there's a running joke with some of my friends and some of the Bible studies I go to that I always pray really short prayers. So whenever there's food involved, they're like, oh, Josh, will you pray real quick, real quick? And I do. Here's the reality. We don't have to try to impress God with our verbose vocabulary. The more words we say in a prayer don't suddenly make God stand up and say, wow, how could I have overlooked their prayer? Now at the temple worship, there were instances of this happening where people would come to the temple and they would say many words in prayer in order to make them seem righteous. And this was happening not just in Solomon's day, but in Jesus's day. And Jesus says in verse uh, Matthew chapter six, verse seven, he says this, when you pray, 
Don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine that they will be heard for their many words. God does not hear you more or hear you better with the amount of words that you say or the kinds of words that you say. Thinking that you can manipulate God through the use of many words is foolish. And here Solomon wants to make the point more abundantly clear. And how does he do that? God is in heaven and you're not. Remember this idea that God is in heaven is playing out in the truth of God being transcendent. That he is outside the bounds of time, space, and matter. That he is above everything. And to think that you can get through to him because you speak the king's English or in a prayer or that you say many words while you're praying is just simply foolish. He's not bound to you through the words that you say. Psalm 115.3 says this, Our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. You can't manipulate God. Even if you pray really well, you can't manipulate God. Or even Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, eight and 9 says this. This is, kind of, uh, this is quoted in what we read earlier. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's de- declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Sometimes this is a good thing to hear. And it may be a little harsh, but I have this quote here that really hit me this past when I was studying this. We have nothing to offer God that he doesn't already own or that he doesn't already have power over. We have no position to bargain with or impress him. The creator of the universe needs nothing from you. And it is right and proper for us to remember that. It really does put us in our place when we recognize how mighty and powerful and transcendent he is and how small, small and weak we are. We can be really brash with our words. We can say things that we really don't mean. We can tell lies and we can make rude comments and we can lash out in anger. And God cares about what we say. And he cares about what we say, not just in, in his presence when we pray, but also when we're with other people. So we need to be mindful with the words that we say. We need to be slower to speak. Not just in prayer before God, but in our own conversations with each other. James 1.19 says this, my dear brothers, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. There's this Latin phrase um, that I like to talk about a lot. It's called quorum Deo. And what that Latin phrase means is before the face of God. And how they attach it to us is that our lives are lived quorum Deo, before the face of God. You aren't only in God's presence when you're here worshiping on Sunday. You're in God's presence all the time. Your life is lived before the face of God. And every time that you use a harsh word, every time that you lash out, every time that you curse your neighbor, all of those words are said before the face of God. So we need to be concerned with how we speak. We can be, need to be concerned with how we talk to one another. And we especially need to be concerned with how we pray. This is true inside and outside these walls. Solomon is concerned with what we say, but his main concern is with what we say in our prayers. Sometimes even our prayers can be prayerless. We use empty 
and pious words that mean nothing, hoping that God will hear us clearer. Much like the sacrifice, he wants your heart, not your empty words. You're not able to impress God with the words that you use. He wants a sincere heart. So it is better if you let your words be few. A fool's voice comes with many words. This is kind of a summation of Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28. Even a fool is considered wise when he keeps silent, discerning when he seals his lips. Whereas Abraham Lincoln made popular, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Be mindful with the things that you speak before God. God is not your homeboy. He's your heavenly father, worthy of all your all glory, honor, and praise. Your stance before God when coming to him in prayer is important. Don't presume upon his grace. Don't be foolish when you pray. Rather, seek to honor God with your words and more so with your heart. Don't presume that you're in a position of control when you pray. The purpose of prayer isn't to change God's mind. It's to shape your heart. We have seen that God is concerned with our ability to listen to him. He wants us to have a posture of humility in prayer, that when we come before him, we know rightly who we are. He wants us to see that when we make a promise also, that we need to keep it. That's what verses four through six are going to look at. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you do vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt upon you and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with you, with your words and destroy the work of your hands? God is concerned with our integrity. He's concerned with follow through. In the Old Testament, people would make vows to God, much like some people do today. God, if you do this, then I will do that. If you heal me, I will serve you. If you save me, I will go into the ministry. If you give me, I will give back to you. One example of this is in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and it's about this lady named Hannah, and she makes a vow to God. Making a vow, this is verse 11, making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember me, or remember and not forget me, and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. You see, Hannah is in a position. She is a barren woman, and all she wants is a son. And she makes a vow to God that if he gives her a son, she will give him over. And guess what? Anna follows through with her vow to God. God gives her a son and he, and she gives him over to his service. Now I want to, I want you to hear this. There's nothing inherently wrong or bad with these vows. The problem comes when we don't follow through with the vows that we make. It is better to not offer to do something if you're not going to do it. It's much easier to make a promise than it is to keep a promise. Here's the thing. Nobody has to or even had to make vows to God, but they would. And if they did, God expected them to follow through with their vows. 
and not just to follow through with their vows, but to follow through immediately. This is important because if we don't follow through immediately with what we vow, then it's easy to rationalize and to make excuses for not doing what we said we would do. Why? Because making a promise to God and not following through on, his, on that promise is sinful. And we always want to do mental gymnastics to get out of state doing something that we said we would do. And when we do that, it makes God angry. Now, why would this make God angry? Why would us making a vow to him and not following through with it make him angry? Because it distorts the very character of God. Our God is a promise-keeping God. And if you claim to belong to him, then you are claiming to do something for him if he does something for you. So you need to be a promise-keeper as well. And when you don't, you are making a mockery of the name that you say you carry. We don't need to play games with God. We don't need to try to rationalize or justify or abandon a vow that we made as if we were playing a game that we weren't going to win. If we keep promising God that we will do this or that and we never do it, then we are more guilty than ever. We are liars and we are untrustworthy. We need to have integrity. We say we're going to do something. We need to do it. So in order to guard ourselves against the anger of God, it's better just not to make a vow at all. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, Jesus says this, Let your yes be yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is of the evil one. Basically, just do what you're, you say you're going to do. Live a holy and godly life, chasing after him, seeking after him. You don't need to make promises to God. You simply need to follow him and pursue him, love him. When we don't listen to God, when we don't pray humbly, and when we don't follow through with what God, we say we're going to do for God, then that's an example of us not following or not fearing God. Verse seven. Many dreams bring futility. So do many words. Therefore, fear God. Remember, fearing God is the purpose and the pursuit of all of Ecclesiastes. We are to fear God, not be afraid of him, but to stand in awe and reverence before him. That's what Proverbs 1, 7 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Solomon has taken us on a journey from vanity to reverence in the first five chapters of Ecclesiastes. One theologian said that fearing God is the grand fundamental of godliness. We have to have a right view of God. Fearing God is recognizing his majesty and his might recognizing that he is supreme and transcendent, transcendent, that he is creator and that he is sustainer, that he holds power of life and death in his hands, that he rules and reigns and has authority and power over all the earth. This quote popped up on my memories on Facebook last week. And if this doesn't paint a picture of why we should fear God, I don't know what will. I shared this, I think it was two years ago, um, but here's what it says. This is a quote from John Piper. All authority. Talking about God. He has all authority over Satan and all demons, over all angels, good and evil, over the natural universe, natural objects, and the laws and forces. Stars, galaxies, planets, meteorites, 
thunder, hurricanes, tornadoes, monsoons, typhoons, cyclones, authority over all their effects, tidal waves, floods, fires, authority over all molecular and atomic reality, atoms, electrons, protons, neutrons, undiscoverable subatomic particles, quantum physics, genetic structures, DNA, chromosomes, authority over all plants and animals, great and small, whales and redwoods, giant squid and giant oaks, all fish, all wild beasts, all invisible animals and plants, bacteria, viruses, parasites, germs, authority over all the parts and the functions of the human body. Every beat of the heart, every breath of the diaphragm, every electrical jump across the million synapses of our brains, authority over all nations and government, congresses, congresses and legislatures and presidents and kings and primers and courts, authority over all armies and weapons and bombs and terrorists, authority over all industry and business and finance and currency, currency, authority over all entertainment and amusement and leisure and media, over all education and research and science and discovery, Authority over all crime and violence, over all families and neighborhoods, and over the church, and over every soul and every moment of every life that has ever been and ever will be. He has all authority. Therefore, we should fear God. Now, here's a beautiful part, that he has all this authority, and we should fear him, and, and that he cares about you, that he loves you that he wants to extend to you grace and mercy, that he wants a relationship with you. And that's why he sent Jesus so that we could be brought into a right relationship with him so that we could boldly approach the throne of grace, that we should pray and accept him knowing rightly who he is so that we could humbly serve him. He wants us to know him and he wants us to see him rightly as a king of the universe who deserves your worship and your praise, your true worship and your right praise as the sovereign Lord who died on the cross for your salvation. He's calling out to you today. He's saying, do you worship me in spirit and in truth? Are you worshiping me to get something out of me? Do you love me? Do you fear me? Are you listening? Are you prepared? We need to approach him the way that he deserves to be approached. With love, with awe, with reverence, with fear. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your love, your grace, your mercy, your kindness. Lord, you are astonishing the fact that you would love us and care for us that as you have oversight over all the things in the world that you would care about me that you would want a relationship with me Lord I pray if there's anybody in here who doesn't see you rightly that you would open their eyes that you would touch their hearts that they would come to know the Lord of grace and majesty and as we sing these songs, Lord, I pray that you would be, that you would be magnified. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.